You're listening to the free, abridged edition of the Energy Transition Show. American coal. Nuclear energy. Natural gas. Hydro. Solar power. Wind turbines. We're becoming a monumental exporter of natural gas. This boom in the United States is not a bubble that's going away. The oil's still there. I'd rather pump it from another country and save ours, and then when the rest of the world runs out, hey, guess what? We can yeah. still turn on our lights. We've run into a problem where we have constraints, where there are limits now. The new phase we're going into related to the exhaustion of these resources, there's no replacement. This is a one-shot affair, and we're unprepared for it. Really, we do not have very much more time to get a handle on this problem. It's better to get to a renewable future, a sustainable future, sooner rather than later. Get there before we do the environmental damage, not after. For April 4th, 2018, this is the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nilder. I've said it before, and I'll say it again. The energy transition will make winners and losers, and we shouldn't be shy about acknowledging that. We have discussed many of them on previous episodes of the show, and the reasons for their rise or demise, as the case may be. But what we haven't done yet is take a close look at the disruptive forces of energy transition themselves, and how they can create some unexpected parallels between industries. Because disruption has unmistakable hallmarks, no matter which industry is being disrupted, or who's disrupting them. For example, there is much that the frackers, the producers of tight oil and shale gas, and Tesla have in common. And perhaps by understanding these forces better, we can get a glimpse of what the future holds for both the rent-seeking incumbents of the old energy order and the upstart technologies and industries that aim to snatch away their crowns. This idea of exploring the disruptive process itself was proposed by the guest in today's show, Liam Denning, one of my very favorite energy journalists, whose work I have cited regularly in the show notes and news items of this podcast. I have enjoyed reading Liam for years, starting back when he wrote a column called Heard on the Street for the Wall Street Journal. I still read his current Bloomberg Gadfly column on almost a daily basis. His insights are always worthwhile, and he has a wonderful way of synthesizing disparate elements of the energy world that brings refreshing perspective and wit to a domain that is generally bereft of both. We began our dialogue years ago after I chastised him on Twitter for something he had written that I disagreed with, but much to his credit, rather than reacting defensively, he engaged me in thoughtful dialogue, and we've enjoyed a long conversation about energy and related matters ever since. I've wanted to get him on the show for ages, so I'm very pleased to have finally made that happen. Now, this conversation went on for over two hours, and I think we could have easily gone on for hours longer had we both not had other commitments on a Sunday afternoon. So rather than test your patience, I have elected to turn it into our first ever two-part episode, a double dose of Denning, if you will. In this first part, we'll talk about the roles that new technologies and financial innovations are playing in the energy transition, with particular focus on Tesla and the frackers. And then in the next episode, we'll talk about the roles of changing consumer preferences, regulation, and falling prices for energy. Now, I realize that talking about disruptive forces might seem a bit abstruse in the abstract, but trust me, I think you'll find this discussion as stimulating and enjoyable as I did, because Liam is just plain fun to listen to. Then in the news segment of this episode, we'll discuss yet another solar first for Tesla, how solar plus storage systems are challenging natural gas and conventional grid power, and yet another new wrinkle in the ongoing travesty that is the failed VC Summer nuclear plant in South Carolina. But first, the first part of our conversation with Liam Denning, recorded February 25th, 2018. So let's bring him into the conversation now. Welcome, Liam, to Energy Transition Show. It's about bloody time we got you on here. Well, Chris, you know, it's been a long-held ambition of mine to come onto this <laughs> illustrious 
podcast. So thank you very much for having me. <laughs> you know, you and I have carried on a conversation about energy for quite a few years now, actually. So rather than being too structured about this conversation, I think it'd be more fun to just do a little something different and just let our audience sort of listen in on our chit chat, our banter. Our ramblings. Yeah. Our ramblings. And you actually offered a provocative idea to get this conversation started, which is that frackers and Tesla have something in common. They both succeeded in disrupting their industries by leveraging similar tools and methods, adopting new technologies, applying financial innovation, appealing to changing consumer preferences, and by pushing the limits on regulation. And so I think I'd like to chase down that thought. But first, why don't you set up the foil for this discussion by describing the 20th century business model that we're leaving behind, and then we can talk about how it's being disrupted. Sure. Um, thanks, Chris. So, you know, in some ways, this ties back to when I first kind of started looking at the energy business, which is almost 20 years ago now. And I was, I was working at an investment bank in London. And, you know, the thing that characterized energy and power at that time was bigness, for want of a better word. You know, if you cast your mind back to 2000, we were just in the middle of the mega mergers of the oil majors who had just been scared to death by $10 oil and were all basically bulking up because oil demand was only going to keep going up and they had to get into bigger projects. And in order to do that, they had to be bigger companies capable of taking on bigger risks, bigger investments. So you had Exxon getting together with Mobil, you had BP buying up Amoco and Arco, et cetera, et cetera. Similar thing and was a lot happening. of that was driven by these massive capital demands of like big offshore drilling projects, deep water and all that sort of thing. Exactly. Things like deep water, things like liquefied natural gas, these huge multi-billion dollar, multi-year yeah. projects were seen as the future. And a similar thing was happening on the power side, you may remember. I think 2000 or 2001 was when Faber and Viag got together to form E.ON. Mm. We had RWE buying up utilities in Europe. Europe in general was run by giant, mostly state-controlled utilities. We even had utilities buying utilities on different continents. You may remember Scottish Power buying Pacificorp, which kind of turned into a disaster back then. But the common theme was demand was sort of taken as a given. You know, Demand would only ever go up. And to succeed in this business, you had to be big. You know, you had to be big to take on these giant projects and raise the capital to do them. And I think all of that really is changing. And there are multiple examples, but I think in some ways Exxon makes a good, a good case study here. When they formed themselves, their kind of worldview was that oil and gas production in the US had peaked and was going down, that the center of the petrochemical business was moving to Asia, and they sort of adjusted accordingly. So looking at Exxon, you know, the bets that they made really turned out to be way off. You know, oil and gas production had peaked in the US, but then it came roaring back, not because of Exxon, but because of all of these smaller independent exploration and production companies, which cracked the code on hydraulic fracturing or fracking and unlocked tight oil and gas resources. As a consequence of that, the petrochemical business also came roaring back in the US to make use of all this cheap natural gas that we weren't using quite as much of. And also demand totally changed. You know, essentially US energy demand went down in the first decade of the 21st century, which 
that's the first decade in which that has happened since America was even a thing. So yeah. a lot has changed both within the industry and on the macro front. And I think that the way I characterize it is it, in some ways it's the rise of small energy versus big energy, because it turns out that in this environment, it can actually be a competitive edge to be smaller, to be nimbler, and to be able to attack things you know, in a scalable way, rather than just doing these huge one-off projects, which you know quite often run over budget, trash your returns, and you know you end up with a lot of unhappy customers and shareholders. Yeah, it's a good point. But you know, in addition to the size aspect of it, I think there's mm. sort of different behaviors, right? Like the long-standing business model of you know Standard Oil all the way up to the present was based to a certain degree on rent-seeking behavior, right? Mm -hmm. And of course, that's embedded in the very concept of a utility monopoly as well. Mm -hmm. You go out and you capture the market and then it's it's captive. right? And you can keep extracting rent from that sort of no matter what happens to demand, you know, to a certain extent. And then even on the supply side, you always have an opportunity to recover even these massive capital-intensive costs of projects through your captive market. You know, and I think about that as being something that's very fundamentally at risk of disruption now. I mean, you know, even <laughs> I had to laugh a second ago when you when you mentioned the Exxon kind of being late to the fracking revolution, that when they did finally decide to make a play and bought XTO, they wildly overpaid for it. Right. Right. Yeah, that was not a well-timed deal. I think natural gas <laughs> gas futures were trading at 6 bucks i think when that was announced it was late 2009 right. and yeah well you've seen what's happened to that <laughs> so yeah i think this rent seeking aspect is really critical to recognize that if you disrupt that you're really kind of overturning the cart on these guys yeah and i think you know the best example of that is what we've seen with what's happening with opec over the past few years so you know if you yeah. go back to 2014, when oil was still trading at over 100 bucks, we began to see excess supply largely as a result of US tight oil production. And then OPEC, led by Saudi Arabia, tries to reassert control over the market by flooding the market. And the thinking being that by doing this, you destroy a lot of these upstart shale companies that that need oil to be at 80, 90, $100 a barrel in order to survive. And the market gets kind of wrung out. Now, as we've seen, it hasn't really played out that way. And the reason being that the shale guys, the likes of the you know Pioneer Natural Resources, Diamondback Energy, those guys, they're corporate entities. So when they get hit with a big shift in the market like that, they pull all sorts of levers to essentially to survive, you know, and they did all of that. They essentially focused on cutting their costs, focused on getting their drilling time down and focused on, you know, tweaking the mechanics of the wells they were drilling, you know, drilling longer laterals, using more sand, all sorts of things. It was kind of like a laboratory. And at the same time, they were backed by US capital markets, you know, interest rates were still very low. And still plenty of investors out there betting on a recovery in oil prices. So they went out and they raised more equity than they had ever raised before, which is kind of remarkable if you think about it. 2016 was the biggest year ever 
for EMP equity raising right in the teeth of the worst downturn in a generation. Now, yeah, OPEC's incredible. Right. And OPEC's looking at this. And the fact is, OPEC's very problem is that a lot of the countries within it, their economies were geared to exploitation of rents. You know, Saudi Arabia being a classic example, this long standing position that essentially, you know, we hold the lion's share of the world's lowest cost reserves. And over time, if we store them in the ground, then they will appreciate in value because oil demand will never go down. And it's kind of like a store of wealth. Now, the fact is that isn't working now because A, demand growth over the long term can't be taken as a given. And, you know, the last decade have given us intimations of that. The other thing is, while they're low cost in the strict sense of it costs only about, you know, pick a number, 10 or 20 bucks maybe to get a barrel of oil out the ground in a place like Saudi Arabia, that isn't the real cost because their real cost is obviously the social cost of the society that's been built around that. And we're now seeing the upheaval in Saudi Arabia as a result of them trying to, as quickly as possible, move away from that model because they know that if they stick to it, they're just going to be dead in the water. Yeah. Yeah. And frankly, I'm still a little skeptical of their pronouncements on that point. I mean, I absolutely support their ambition to transition mm-hmm. to, you know, more of a renewably powered society and to stay in the energy business of the, the transitioned world, you know, but it's not an easy thing to do. And I've seen a lot more nice words and big pronouncements than action from them. So I'm a little skeptical, but I think yeah, that's, a like healthy, that's a healthy degree of skepticism you have there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, okay. Well, all right. So let's drill down a little bit on some of these things that you brought up there as to how, you know, the old energy model is being disrupted. It seems to me that in addition to the frackers and Tesla, these disruptive forces are characteristic actually of many other energy technologies and markets that are now coming into play in energy transition. Mm-hmm. So maybe be productive if we talked about them in turn. Let's take it from the top then and talk about new technologies. So you were mentioning just a moment ago how the frackers came up. They basically succeeded in combining horizontal drilling technology with hydraulic fracturing technology. Mm-hmm. And it was that combination that really made the difference here. That was the innovation. Like both of those things had been around for decades. Right. But they hadn't been successfully combined. And it was when we finally did that and made it possible to produce gas from shale that mm-hmm. kicked off the whole boom that later became, you know, the tight oil boom as well. Mm-hmm. So that's an interesting new technology aspect of it. You know, looking at Tesla, you know, when I think about some of the technical innovations that they've done, I mean, there's really a huge number of them, Mm -hmm. lots of patents, lots of interesting things from wiring together, you know, thousands of small lithium ion battery cells to make enough of them to power a car. I think in a Tesla, there's like over 7,000 cells, you know, there's not one big battery. Mm-hmm. And then there's all these other innovative design elements, big touch screens and cameras and sensors leading to sort of self-driving technologies, not 100%, but getting there, you know, these mm-hmm. over-the-air software updates and gullwing doors and all kinds of crazy things. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, what are your thoughts about kind of the new technology side of disruption? Well, I think 
you know, this is something that's happening on both the supply side and the demand side. And again, it marks quite a break from what we've been used to over the past century or so. So looking looking at fracking, for example, you know, what that did essentially was in certain basins of the US, you know, these are names that will be familiar to anyone who's looked at the oil business over the past couple of years, like the Permian Basin, the Barkin Basin, the Eagleford Basin, the Marcellus Basin. What they did was in some ways they took away exploration risk. So, you know, instead of saying I need to go out and explore, you know, 10,000 acres of seawater and seabed and, you know, drill some test wells and then try and, you know, get some dry holes that were wildly expensive. (laughs) Right. What we have here is at this point, we kind of know where tight oil is. We know, you know, where the basins are and even which are the best bits of the basins that offer the best economics. So that's been taken away. And the other thing that they've done is they've radically shortened the development timescale. So, you know, typically for an offshore field, you know, from initial exploration to first production, you can be talking, you know, five to 10 years. With shale, you are talking really in terms of months. And that has had all sorts of impacts on the market. Probably the the greatest impact it has had is it's made it very hard for organizations like OPEC to control prices in the way that they once did. So, you know, if you go back to earlier episodes, what would happen is the industry would invest too much, oil supply would go up, there would be some sort of economic slowdown or something of that nature, and then oil prices would crash, demand would choke off, and then we would go through the cycle again as oil prices rose. And that was a multi-year process, and it gave OPEC the opportunity by scaling production up and down to kind of manipulate prices. These days, as we've been seeing over the past year, you know, OPEC is once again trying to support prices by holding supply off the market. The difference this time is you have a bunch of companies competing in the shale basins. And when the price goes above, say, 50, 55 bucks a barrel, they all go out, hedge their future production. They use the certainty on cash flow that, that gives them to then finance new wells, and they bring on production much more quickly than used to happen in the past, and the market corrects much more quickly than it did in the past. So that is a huge change from what we've been used to. The other thing they've done is, in some ways, if you go back to what I was saying about the shale patch kind of being a laboratory where people are trying out different techniques... That kind of thinking has spread into the wider oil industry. So, you know, the shale guys are focused very much on execution. As I say, the exploration risk has kind of gone away. It's all about how quickly and efficiently and safely can you bring on these new wells. And a lot of how they do that is really just standardizing things. They standardize the tools they use. They standardize the well design. They use a rig that they can either break down or even walk from pad to pad and punch holes in the ground as quickly as they can. What we've seen actually is some of that bleeding into the offshore market where, 
in the old days, what would happen is you would basically have a project and you would get a bunch of engineers and they would bespoke design, you know, a rig and maybe a seabed surface gathering system. It would all be done as a one-off. And you can imagine the economics of doing things that way are pretty terrible. Yeah. Same thing kind of applies to nuclear power plants, frankly. Right. Or any of those big mega projects. What we've started to see is actually some of the offshore guys, both in the oil services business, we actually saw a deal on Friday, a joint venture that Schlumberger announced on Friday, which is speaking to this very point. They've started to try and standardize things because they've said, hey, you know, if we're actually going to compete with something like Thai oil and get our costs down, we have to standardize, which I know sounds like a banal thing, but in this industry is actually pretty radical in terms of how they approach what they do. I think with Tesla, you know, in some ways, I think the more important thing that Tesla has done, you know, apart from the specific, you know, advances around cell design and and the over the air software and that sort of thing, is it's made electric cars cool, which they were not and they were not previously. And you know, you often hear particularly fans of Tesla saying, you know, Tesla's new car, the Model 3, I mean, we can get into that later, but the new car, the Model 3, is the iPhone of electric cars. Now, I, just to be clear, I don't buy that for a second, but <laughs> it does get to this point, which is what Tesla has done is it's made this product cool and it's made it desirable. And th- there's no taking away from the fact that Tesla has persuaded hundreds of thousands of people to put down a thousand bucks on a car they've never sat in. They have no idea really when they're going to get it, but they know they want it. And that in itself is a remarkable change. And again, similar to how the shale guys pushed the traditional oil industry to start adopting some of its methods, Tesla has also obviously pushed the rest of the industry towards this. You know, you can see companies, particularly like Daimler, BMW, just falling over themselves to reposition for the changes they see coming in this market. And that, I think, is possibly whatever happens to Tesla as a company, that may be its greatest achievement. We hope you've enjoyed this free sample of the Energy Transition Show. Our full episodes cover much more and are generally at least an hour long. In addition to two full new episodes each month, subscribers can also view interactive transcripts of our interviews and explore our extensive show notes with links to all the research resources and news items for each episode. Our subscription podcast works in all podcast apps and players, including iTunes, and is downloadable. The first 33 episodes of the Energy Transition Show were free and always will be. So if you want to see what our full shows contain, feel free to check those out. Then we hope you'll become a member and support our show. To become a subscriber and enjoy our full offerings, just point your browser to energytransitionshow.com and join. Annual subscriptions are just $60 a year. 
Monthly subscriptions and per-episode purchases are also available. In order to bring you the most unfiltered, unbiased, honest information we can produce, we have elected not to take any sponsors or advertisers. 100% of the revenue that makes the Energy Transition Show possible comes from listener subscriptions. And let me offer a special welcome to the students and educators out there who have joined our new subscribers. A half dozen university classes are now using the show as coursework, with more joining all the time, so welcome. And if you're a student or an educator who would like to inquire about our unbeatable educational discount, just shoot me an email at chris at energytransitionshow.com and we'll work something out for you. So join us today and support our ad-free, hormone-free, organic, handcrafted, artisanal podcast featuring high-quality, cutting-edge interviews and news about the most important story of our time, energy transition. And now a quick look at some recent news items. Item 1. A year after announcing the project, Tesla has finally begun installing a solar array on the roof of its Gigafactory facility outside Reno, Nevada, where it makes battery systems for its cars. When finished, the 70-megawatt solar PV array will be the largest rooftop array in the world, by about a factor of seven. When complete, Tesla plans for the factory to be a net-zero energy facility, providing all of its power from on-site solar, with zero carbon emissions, and just 20% of the water consumption of a standard facility, plus an on-site recycling facility that will reprocess all of Tesla's battery cells, modules, and packs. See the articles linked in the show notes for more very cool details. Musk continues to raise the bar for everyone else. Impressive stuff. Item 2. A new analysis by Bruce Mountain of CME, an Australian energy consultancy, has found that a Tesla Powerwall residential battery system paired with a 5-kilowatt rooftop solar array in Adelaide, South Australia, is probably several hundred dollars a year cheaper than just buying grid power. At least, that's what I get. Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com and follow us on Twitter at Transition Show. Our theme music was by Mike Sugar and Mark Burnfield, who you can find online at mikesugarmusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XE Network.